Hello, everyone. This is the RF Factor podcast, episode number 13. Wow, I had to look at my notes here. With Pete Gagliardi and me, Ray. Tonight, we're joined by Dr. Christopher Bellavita. I know him as Bellavita. And in fact, when he signs on, you're going to see his moniker is just Bellavita because that's how people know him at the Naval Postgraduate School, where he is the director of programs. Interesting background. I'll go through it very, very quickly. He received his PhD from Berkeley, his master's from Berkeley, and his undergraduate from Penn State University. Pretty impressive. But what's most impressive about Chris is his insight. So we're looking forward to speaking to him about leadership, about Homeland Security, and actually whatever comes up. Hey, Pete, how are you doing today? Good, good, good. I hope everybody got their seatbelt on for this one. Um, <laughs> this is going to be a ride. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, should we keep him in a green room or take him out? Uh, we got to take him out at some point, but okay. should, should we remind the folks what this is all about or what? Uh, please do. Well, first of all, welcome everybody to the RF Factor. And the letters RF stand for Relentless Follow-Up. And it's a key factor if you're going to implement a new policy, a new program within an organization, it's the most difficult factor to sustain most of the time because it involves continuous checks on that rearview mirror up there to see from whence you came, right? In other words, you want to look back to see if your policies and your procedures are still standing. The ones you put in place maybe six months ago. A year ago, five years ago, are they still in operation and are, are, they, are they delivering the value that you anticipated that they would? So what we try to do is bring the best leadership minds that we could find, bring them on to our podcast and tease out what they know about leadership, the, the concepts. Um, how they were able to positive, positively impact change. You know, something tells me that we're going to be questioned more than we're going to have conversation. So be prepared. Uh, this is I, I didn't study for the exam, but I'm nervous <laughs> now. I mean, he's a PhD, you know, they like to give you tests. Well, that insightful mind, I'm already nervous, but um, <laughs> let, me, let me bring him on here. Yeah, th thank you for, for that uh, moderately uh, interesting uh, uh, intro introduction. Uh, your PhD, you know, does stand for piled higher and deeper. So as long as we get that on the table first. So you you claim that that I have insight. So what do, what do you mean by that? What's what's an example of that? Pete, you see this? This is yeah. already his podcast. Uh, oh, 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 already, oh, okay. already, we're, we we're on the defensive. Well, you know <laughs> so, what? Let, right. Let's talk about that. You want to talk about yeah, so that? Yeah, let's get over, over that look, part of it. Okay. Look. Okay, so what do I mean about insight? You're developing a new program. You're developing uh, your, your Homeland Security program. 9-11 happens. There's all this attention on Homeland Security. And somebody says there ought to be a program. We, 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 we've, got, we've, we've got to have something that sort of takes the best minds together and, and brings out what they know ab about this, puts the ingredients together to make bread. That's what I think 
uh, insight is. How do we bring the ingredients together? Which ones do we need? Can we sustain them? And is the bread going to be good at the end of the day? Okay, I, I, I like that. That's, that's a nice metaphor. It, it, it comes nowhere near to describing how we created our program at, at, at NPS. Uh, but, but I do recognize that as one of the paths of, of leadership, the notion that there are people who kind of have a sense of what's going on and they can shape the environment, not control it, but at least shape the environment to, to get closer to the direction that they want. Um, for, for us in starting the Naval Postgraduate Schools Center for Homeland Defense and Security, I think what, what we did was uh, we made up stuff. We did ready, fire, aim. We, rather than spending a lot of time trying to design what is the best homeland security program we just said hey this makes sense let's do let's do two or three of these and let's get feedback and see what happens so so the ready the fire part is just do something and then the aim is let's have a uh, uh, the uh, it's kind of a, a, a radical feedback loop but relentless in in your your phrase uh, Pete it we Whenever we change any of our classes, we have daily feedback on how did it go today? How did it go today? We're not knowing what you're doing means you have to get you have to have this feedback, the OODA loop or whatever it is. So we just made up a lot of stuff and continuing to develop it as we I think it's called the agile process now, or at least some people call that. We get a 60% solution and we just keep iterating until we get better and better at that. And that's pretty much it. Well, give us an, go ahead. Give us an example. I mean, look, you. You um, people sign up to come to this school or they get selected by their organizations to come and then you, you get them into the program. What, what do you, what's the first thing you tell them? What, what do you do when they're all sitting in front of you the first day? And you how just, do you explain you, you what gotta, you're going to do? You just got a taste of it, Pete. Right like this. Shot out of a cannon. It's, it's, well, I think when Gadetti showed up the first day. Uh, they, they, you know, these are these are 32 very competent public safety professionals across the disciplines who are not sure if they're smart enough to be in the program or they think they already know everything that's in here. So somewhere between there uh, are, are most of the people. So rather than spending a lot of time talking, we just put them into a tabletop exercise immediately and spend the first two hours doing that. So. And we we make it may sound silly, but we make them stand up and we make them move chairs around and the tables around so they can form into groups. So they have all this pent up energy and using it in some kind of physical task and being around strangers and introducing themselves gets all this energy out. So then they can start relating to each other as as people. If there is one theme in the pot, I'll stop there, Pete. <laughs> no, 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 please, please continue. You, 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 you took a breath. And when Italians speak, the first one who takes the breath is defined as the listener. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to my question would be to follow up on, on your train of thought there. At some point now, you've got them moving chairs around. They're, they're, they're doing this tabletop exercise. But then what, what's your role then? What, 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 what are you doing at that point or at some point? Yeah, I, I think I understand the, the sense. Ray, let's see if you, if you uh, agree with this. We go in there with a, uh, a very detailed plan. So if, um, if everybody were just cogs in a machine, we have something for them to do for the two weeks that they're in Monterey, but they're not cogs. They are, uh, you know, they're, they're humans, they're competent professionals. 
so uh, the metaphor that I use is that we are all jazz musicians. Now, uh, for the class that I'm in, uh, I'll start the themes, but you know, it we we everybody is a talented musician. So, what is the what kind of music can we create metaphorically that is based on allowing people, encouraging people, giving them opportunity to bring their talents out? And it really is ready, fire, aim. Uh, uh, theoretically, it's a complexity strategy. We have we try to create a complex adaptive system where uh, what emerges is something that nobody predicted. So we have boundaries, which are usually, you know, f- 50 minute sessions within those boundaries. We have an attractor. So, for example, with Ray's session, his first seminar was an Intel briefing and we gave her the Intel briefing. If you remember that yep. video, Ray, it was only 30 years ago. Uh, that then, then we asked him some questions based on that. And then we have conversations. Uh, going around and then we so we have the boundaries and the activity or the attractor and when the conversation is going well like your podcast we amplify it we keep going into territory that we don't know and when it's not going anywhere we stomp it and we move on to something else and so through that process we we create an emergent system and as long as it's loosely directed not loosely it's directed kind of what we want to do which is where our program is about uh, expanding people's ability to be effective leaders and they're part of the homeland security arena. They come in with leadership potential. We, we develop that. And so as long as what we're doing is, is uh, contributing to that mission, we keep going. So each class is different. Each course is different. It's not cookie cutter. And having, having said that, I, I understand that I, I don't, I'm not challenging that, but at some point there must be some common denominators that start to, cut across the various groups for for certain ways of thinking or best practices, for example. I don't understand your question. There's not there's nothing that cuts across. No, there's no commonalities of, of oh. that that you find that that if the group fails to identify it for whatever reason or define it, perhaps for whatever reason, you would step in and say what you're doing. We've defined as X, Y or Z. I think I understand your question and what cuts across. We have something called educational skill requirements. The Department of Homeland Security and FEMA did not just say, here's a lot of money, do whatever you want with it. Uh, we have educational skill requirements. So uh, the, the program is built upon our graduates should be able to do certain kinds of things when they leave the program, like critical thinking, like effective research skills, like the ability to collaborate uh, with uh, disciplines outside their their own discipline those those kind of things all our programs have a a content dimension but they also have a a process dimension i think in in your book you talk about uh i think technology and people and processes and, and we we kind of do that we have the people and the processes part and the and the technology is kind of the tools that we use to run a graduate program did that get close to answering your question more so it's right on the money but I'm, I'm going to let Ray ask a couple of questions here because I, 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 I do want to go back to Chris, but because we've touched on or shouldn't touch, we jumped in the, the deep end of the pool as it relates to uh, CHDS. Chris, you're, you're what about nearly 15 years out in the program? Uh, well, eight, 18 years. We 18. started in 2003. Okay. 18 yes. years out. Um, what do you wish that you would have known then that you know now? 
Um, nothing. I find that to be a, a, a not very fruitful activity. I uh, try to continually learn. I try to keep doubt alive. And, uh, you know, I'm nervous about being on this podcast. I don't I don't know what the right way is to be on a, on a podcast. So I'm I'm just making stuff up as, as I'm talking for, like for conversation. Program, I'm looking for the program. What did you wish you knew then uh, after 18 we are, years? We are going. We are going through a redesign now of our curriculum. And the operating question we have is uh, maybe it came from Gadetti. It was, uh, no, it's actually uh, um, Peter Drucker's question. If we knew what we, if we knew then what we know now, would we be doing the same thing? And our working hypothesis is probably not. So let's try some new things. But that's at the level of the program, mm -hmm. at the level of the individual. I just think give us talented people. Let's, put them together and give them interesting questions to talk about. Let's see where that goes. You, you know, Ray, my sense is that although you sat through the classes and many, many of the days you were actually awake uh, in, in, in much of the class, but, but it's, it's what happens after the class. It's the colleagues, yeah. it's the disagreements, it's the, the working through. Uh, it's always, not always, but it's baffled me that what we do at the Naval Postgraduate School, that could be replicated in New Jersey, that could be replicated in San Diego. You get people who don't normally hang out together, but who still, they share a mission that maybe they're not really clear about that, but they share, let's say, a public safety mission or an ethos of public service. And you get them together and say, hey, what's going on with you? Well, you know, what's on your agenda these days? And I've heard a number of your guests talking about it. it's about the people, it's about building the relationship. That's what they did at CHDS. It's what Homeland Security, I think, does more effectively than we did before September 11th, 2001, is it brings people together who normally did not have a way to hang out with each other and say, OK, hang out for 18 months now go back home and do this in your community. Why did you make that sound, Ray? Well, 18 years, you're looking at well over a thousand people, almost 2000 people through the program. Well, multi we have multiple programs. It's not just the master's. I see the master's as the center of, of CHDS, but other program leads see them, their own programs. It's, it's a collaborative, but yeah, with several, several thousand people. Each one of them has their own story. Um, each one of them seems to hail from whether it's a different jurisdiction, a different discipline. And this is sort of that, that uh, ingredients piece that, that I found uh, that that comes together to create this collaborative environment. I know for me, it sort of changed the way I thought going forward in my own career. But turning back to you, you, I think you were in a position and you still are today. You just about know everyone's story that is coming into the program and going through the program, but you have your own story. Where does that start? How did, how did you get from, you know, some beginning somewhere. Um, I know we talked about the, the Olympics in, in Utah. How do you get from wherever you started to the Naval Postgraduate School? Can you tell me your story? And I say that I, I, because uh, being on the wrong end of you, meaning in the classroom, right? Um, I know you're, I know you're being, uh, uh, you're, you're being kind when you say that. <laughs> I am. Um, I've, New Jersey kind. You know, you, just like every other student that's gone through NPS, you know our story. What's your story? T tell me why that is useful to this podcast so that I know how to shape it. 
leadership is something that you have to work for. Um, there is effort that you need to put into becoming a leader, whether it's making sure that you're, yeah, you're getting yourself educated, uh, you're engaging in those type of whether they're assignments or missions that are going to sort of challenge you. That happened with you. Would you entertain the idea that leadership is a myth as, as a hypothesis? I, I like meaning, go oh, ahead. Yes. Yeah. Give us a uh, shot. I mean, I, I, and I, I haven't fully worked this out yet, but listening to the people who you've had on your podcast and then, uh, you know, reflecting on that o- over the, the, the weeks and um, then going back to the literature, it seems to be something that it's like this this uh, magic incantation. Uh, and there are various forms of the magic. But once you are bestowed, uh, when you have leadership bestowed upon you, whether you're somebody who's promoted into that position or others defer to you as kind of the informal organization, a, a variety of, of ways that one gets that title, then you're expected to somehow to do something different. And that's not really clear. If you look at there's one of your one of your speakers talked about the thousands of, of you go on a Google search uh, and look at leadership and the, the, the leadership literature is just all over the place. And, I, and there's there's no evidence that any of the leadership literature or the theories or the schools of thought have done anything else other than make consultants fairly wealthy since the 70s in leadership training programs. There, I'm unaware of really any measures how it's improved the leadership in our country or in our organizations. We get eaches that we can tie it into, but uh, I just don't see the d- data for that. So it looks at what what are we trying to do? And I think it's, it's trying to put too much pressure in this VUCA world. If you're familiar with that acronym, the VUCA, the, the, the world that we live in that, that, that if, if leaders are in an organization where there's a lot of rules and you follow the rules, that's a different kind of leader, maybe even a manager. But the world that we're in is right now volatile. Uh, this, this is the acronym for VUCA. It's volatile. It's uncertain. It's uh, uh, complex. It's ambiguous. You kind of never know what's going to happen next. Mm. And how do you lead in that kind of environment? That's not in the leadership literature. Well, there's some of the leadership literature jumps on that, gives it new names. So it's ignoring most of the leadership literature that I'm aware of ignores a couple things about it that leadership is not the property of an individual so much as it's a property of a collective. Who are the, who are the people you're trying to lead? Followers matter, you know, as many of your guests have talked about. Why do you care about the people you're supposed to be leading? Because they matter to you. The context, what works for one agency, I think Fernandez had, had an example of that. What worked in Miami, maybe not, not so much in, in the next place that he went to. And you're continually learning. Uh, the context change, uh, the, um, the the dynamics of what it means to be a leader. My my sense is when I've spoken to a, I've spoken to a lot of leaders who are very effective, and I ask them, okay, so why are you effective? How did you become an effective leader? One of the things that they almost all of them have in common is that they are unable to clearly articulate their theory of leadership about why they're effective. It just works. I knew Gadetti when he was a sergeant, and then I knew him when he was a commander. It's still Ray Gadetti. What happened to him that made him be a leader? I think the context and the followers in your organization 
allowed that part of you, demanded that part of you come out. But it wasn't just you. It was the context in the group that you were in. And just, Pete, just looking at some of your career and the stuff that you've done at, at ATF and, 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 and elsewhere, um, I'm, I'm guessing it's something similar as well. You are you are part of a network. You're, it's not so much the individual. So in the same way, we call people followers. But you know in your organizations, the followers, they're like the NCOs. The, in the, you know, you go to them when you want to lead effectively. They're, they're all around. <laughs> This notion of of being a leader, it, it's a hypothesis that maybe we're trying to sell people a bill of goods here. I don't know if I believe that or not, but one of the ways that that uh, that I try to talk with people is how do I know what I think until I see what I say? So an opportunity like this says, all right, Bella Vita, uh, what what if leadership were a myth? How would we know that and how would we how would we disprove that? How could we falsify that assertion that it's a myth? And I, I, don't, I don't know those answers. And yes, it often is a conversation stopper at parties, too, when I bring this up. So. Well, look, it, you said it before. If we were talking about management, I think it would be a lot easier to sort of describe that. Uh, but when it comes to leadership, I think what always creeps into the conversation is the individual personalities and that it's different but it shares something and we don't know what that something is. Um, we've heard leadership is about inspiring people. Very subjective, that word inspiring. Um, so what you've described, it's resonating with me. Um, hence the reason why I think it's important to get many perspectives from what we perceive to be leaders like yourself, like others that have come on the cast, because they're giving a different perspective of this mythical nature of leadership. So, so look, I, I, I think I'm in a, a the catbird seat here. I, I've got the, uh, the professor and, and, and you were a student at the time and I'm listening to both of you. And, the professor says that um, I throw them in. We, we, we have a tabletop. They stand up. We move the chairs around and they work it out amongst themselves and, 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 and they develop this synergy or this learning. So, Ray, when this was going on and you were engaged in this tabletop, there must have been somebody saying, let's go right and somebody else saying, let's go left. And there's somebody that somebody or something made made the two different diverging opinions come together as as one so what what was that and who was that i mean so are, are you saying when was homeostasis reached uh, <laughs> that's a good point pete because as you're describing it that would happen. I mean, particularly you, you'd have your cohorts and they would be blended together into a plenary. And what I always found in, in the plenaries was just a tremendous disorder and or I should say chaos going on with the larger group. But when the cohorts separated, the cohorts had sort of like their own identities. And because they spent more time together as a smaller group. Like at the bar after after class, right? Very true. Exactly. They, they, they seem to reach that homeostasis sooner. Now, the uh, divergent opinions, they were still there, but people 
I think people found themselves willing to listen more than they would have um, if, uh, you know, prior to going into this sort of collaborative enterprise. Look, I'll tell you, for me, you know, I, I prior to that experience, I think I was in law enforcement about maybe 14, 15 years my my friends at that point in my career were, were cops. And now I was thrown into this much larger melting pot where my the acronyms from my organization didn't really fit well with the folks from the Coast Guard or, or the, the fire service or or the health service. So it, it forced us all to um, boil things down to elemental levels that we can have a more uh, fundamental discussion on things, which then also at the same time was we're creating trust and bonds a one uh, among one another. And we found that it was okay to disagree with one another, which is something that I, I didn't see in my own, you know, going back to my own world in, you know, in say the law enforcement community, you know, in the group that I was with, if you disagreed with someone, well, that that's an unpopular place to be. We hear this dynamic that Chris ex- explained, sort of. Uh, um, it was fostered. It was nurtured. It, fo- it fostered it, and it was okay to disagree. It was okay to have conversations. It was okay to be, uh, you know outside of what everybody else would have thought because you were given the opportunity to explain yourself. And Chris, as the, as Peter, if, if I, if on, on that point, if I understood what your question is, I, I, I'm translating it in my own head yeah. as where does order come from? Yeah. If everybody's just doing whatever they want, where does order come from? And, and that's one of the properties of complexity that order emerges from the complex adapted from multiple agents interacting based on a few rules. And one of the rules is you're going to be civil to each other. Another rule is you're going to take, take turns in communicating. Another is you're going to act professionally. Another is you're going to bring evidence. There, there are some rules. And if you, if you use those rules and we select people who have already demonstrated that they know what it means to be a professional and they have, they have their own ideas. We're not looking to get rid of their ideas. We're looking for them to share their ideas and, And through that process, order emerges. Watch a flock of birds leaving a wire somewhere or uh, and who is the lead bird there? It's that they those birds follow some orders. Uh, uh, Watch how a city is developed. There's no one that really designs a city. But by following certain rules and order emerges from that. It's not the only way to organize because clearly there are rule based organizations. But my sense is in your task forces in ATF. I, uh, speculation here, when they worked really well, nobody was ordering. The people, the talented people you had kind of knew what to do. Every now and then somebody might have to come in and, and, and kind of recalibrate. But for the most part, when you have good professionals working effectively together, the order is the property of them working with each other. So did, did you have these rules and did you communicate these rules like uh, at, on the first day when people arrived or, or before an exercise? Would you lay out what the rules were so everybody under, understood that? No, no, we let them discover it. And, and uh, would you point them out? I mean, if we asked you, what were those rules? Could say- Several months later. Yes, yeah, several months later. Well, I, I'd say. Because uh, each class is different. At the end of the class, would say, "Okay, here is what we did here," and then I would go through my complexity theory and the adaption and the boundaries and amplifying and dampening and those kind of things. 
And, and you know, maybe a third of the people bought into it. A third of them thought it was BS. And another third said, I don't really understand what's, what's going on here still. Uh, can't get them all. And I should say that each of our instructors, each of our faculty teaches in a different way. Uh, because I was not, I, I did not uh, grow up in rule-based organizations. Um, I, I didn't, I resisted rules. And so I looked for a theoretical perspective that allowed me to do what I wanted within certain boundaries and, and trust that came out. And so Gadetti grew up in a rule-based organization and, and many of the people in our organization, they want to know what are the rules to operate effectively in here? And I said, make your own. It's the notion of when, when you're a follower, you look around for somebody to tell you what to do. And then you become a leader because you have ideas about what you want to do. And then as you advance beyond that, you recognize that there are other people also called leaders who have ideas about what should be done, and they might not agree with you. So if you're not in a command and control relationship with them, how do you work effectively with other people whose ideas may be even better than yours? And I think you learn that in a certain stage of your development. Yeah, this Very is a this is a, a great segue uh, into the notion of relentless follow-up. And I know in the green room, oh, please do. I'm looking forward uh, to this. In the, green room, in, in the green room, we had a little bit of discussion and we figured that we should save it for now. And interestingly enough, is that wine he's drinking? <laughs> no, no, this is green tea. Uh, well, interestingly enough, the way you've just laid that out about in a rules-based organization in the world that, that uh, Pete came from and I came from, the the notion of relentless follow-up was extremely important because you were going back to, in a sense, check on if those rules were being complied to. It is a synonym for uh, relentless follow-up nagging? <laughs> and nudging, yes. N um, nudging is a little different from nagging to, to me. I think it's clear. I think it's confirming, <laughs> clarifying and confirming. Confirming, okay, all right. So I know you understand uh, because you've heard us uh, with the amount of uh, cast that you've listened to on us. You've heard us repeat this or you've heard Pete describe it. But I'm wondering if you're 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 questioning it uh, to a degree because uh, is nagging problematic to get. My, my, my wife defines nagging as reminding someone of something you know they haven't forgotten. So I think that there is a, uh, a balance. I, I don't understand relentless follow-up. Okay, so you heard Frank uh, talk about the rape kits. I did. So there's a policy, let's say, to, to test rape kits when, on a, in a timely manner. And for whatever reason, my butt hurts, I got a headache, I don't have enough money, there's not enough people, the guy is on vacation, uh, somebody got transferred, whatever. The rape kits aren't getting done. Yep. Some, the only reason they found out about that was by accident and everybody's caught embarrassed and red-handed and has got to fess up to the truth. So, yes. So relentless follow-up would be that we hold people accountable for saying, for agreeing to do what they agreed to do. I, I agree completely with that. And I, I think that there, 
there is a category, there are, there are, there's a category of work that takes place in organization where there are right and wrong answers. And, and if you know the right answer, like you have to use the test kits. And if you're not doing that, then yes, I think that's appropriate. Hey, the, the rules are you have to follow up here. I'm not saying no rules. I'm looking at the category of organizational activities that I think what you're talking about is it's not because Frank is a leader, but that's a managerial task to make sure are we following the rules. Okay. But but then look at what an organization does interacting with other organizations in a completely volatile environment where they don't have command and control relationships with those other organizations. What does relentless follow up mean in that kind of context? Well, in that context, I would say that and this is something that um, in my world often happens because we have police involved that are interdependent upon uh, forensic types to analyze and extract additional information from the uh, preliminary information that's gathered at a crime scene. Yes. And so they they, they report to different chains of command at various different levels of government from state, local and federal. So, yes. So. My idea of relentless follow-up is that you bring them together before you go to the crime scene. You agree on what the process is. Everybody says, I am in, that's what I'm going to do. And now relentless follow-up is somebody going back and saying, have you done what you said you're going to do? You're going you're gonna to process this piece of evidence within 24 to 48 hours. Is that really happening? Why are my hearing people come back to me and say, it's been two weeks, it's been a month, and I haven't got a report back? And that, that, that's what I see. Relentless follow-up is following up on something that everyone agreed to do, and especially when they're from uh, a diverse organizations that are required to think and act together in a collaborative way. Uh, that that makes sense to me. What you just described when when you had when you were working with Michelle Merza is that how you pronounce her last yes, name? Merza, Merza, Merza. So are were you? Uh, I mean, did you use the same logic? Of course. I mean, yeah. How so? Can you describe that? You had no control over over her or the appropriations committee. You could only influence it. Exactly. But once they agreed to do something, uh, and and I agreed to do something. I held myself responsible to do it and, 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 and they too, but let's say that that something was to give to, to appropriate a certain amount of funds to ATF for a certain yes. reason. At some point they held us accountable at the next appropriations hearing. They wanted the director to say what he it was a, he at the time, there was no, she at that time, what he did, with that money they gave them for that purpose. Okay, that, that makes sense to me. And, I, and that's I, the you follow have, up. You have helped me understand can, can that I, concept. Can I also better. describe it this way? Um, hearkening back to my NPS days, Bloom's taxonomy was something I learned from the get go, uh, entry into the program. I have since come to favor that. Uh, sort of that framework of understanding learning on understanding uh, evolution of of uh, of someone's uh, skill sets 
when you look at Bloom's taxonomy, there's a piece in there, right? Evaluation. I find that the relentless follow-up, while when CompStat was being developed, it probably didn't sound cool to use the word evaluation. So it was relentless follow-up. But where I identify relentless follow-up is Bloom's in Bloom's taxonomy, the evaluation piece. And I find it to be the most difficult for whether it's leaders, whether it's change agents, a policy, folks that have a vision, folks that are, are coming into an organization and, and talk about the change they want to make, uh, the implementing the assortment of programs, because at the level of the uh the folks are in an organization where they're now have the ability to implement change, implement programs. It's usually not just one thing. It's not. A I'm, 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 I'm losing track of what you're telling me, right? Uh, the evaluation piece is necessary because if at a high level in organization, you're not just working on one program that you're implementing. It's usually several. It's usually several. Yeah. So if you're I'm, not, I'm tracking. If, okay. you know, Pete's uh, metaphor of looking in the rear view mirror, I've been around plenty of uh, leaders, ranking commanders. They, they talk about where they want to go but they never go back and follow up. They never do the evaluation to make sure any of that stuff. Mission and accomplished. You, you find that you, and you find that not unusual in your professional experience, not, both of you. It's not unusual. Um, hence the reason where Comstat had that piece in there of relentless follow-up. If you want to make sure things are, what gets measured gets done, Peter Drucker. If you want to make sure it gets done, you better measure it. That's relentless follow-up. What about stuff that you can't measure? Like prevention, like homeland security, well, you, you, or, or no? I'm thinking of the if people are important. How do you develop an authentic relationship with the people that you're with in a hierarchical setting when you have a formal authority over them, but but you also recognize their value of human beings? And sometimes you have to break the rules. Sometimes yep. equity means you teach, you treat people differently based on their situation, not necessarily the same. You know those those tough things that 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 you have to deal well, with. You let them. You 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 ensure that you bring them together to think and act together with you so they see themselves in what nice. in what they're trying yeah. to do. If they don't recognize themselves, they don't recognize their input, if they don't see that they're involved in this or in, in, in the the uh, main purpose of this organization, they won't be. <laughs> yeah. And and, so, and I so think what I, Pete is describing is empowerment. Um to, at, a, at a high level in an organization, you're not going to be able to uh, spearhead every initiative. But what you can do is lay out a vision, lay out a roadmap and inspire people and uh, allow them to go out and conduct this work. Right. So that, that to me sounds like a bucket full of cliches that you want to inspire people, give them a vision, empower people. You know, that we've we've had that language at least since the 70s. How are we doing with that? What's your assessment of the quality of you? You've all spent a lot of time in the, in the professions, the quality of leadership across the board now in public service, in public sector, in law enforcement now compared to any time in your career. How would you measure that? or even assess it into it intuitively? Well, I, I would look, usually when a, a, a program doesn't sustain, when, when, it, when it is, doesn't 
deliver the benefits that you anticipated over the period of time that you anticipated. It's it's usually a, a question of um, the the people are, aren't getting feedback. The people never were included. They never saw themselves in this. They they agreed to do it because they wanted to be cooperative rather than collaborative with you. I, uh, Pete, uh, my apologies. I didn't ask the question correctly. I'm looking at for your assessment. Uh, across across the country, law enforcement leadership, not a particular agency, but but how would you assess the quality of law enforcement leadership? Law, police are under attack all over the all over this country. What kind of leadership do you see out there that you would hold up as models for what other departments should emulate? I know there are a lot of departments, but just in general, in your in your observation of those of that discipline. Well, there certainly are departments that we could identify that are models. Um, I, I, at the risk of leaving one out, I'm, I'm hesitant to. to <laughs> okay, there's an example of leadership. Yeah, right there. Yeah, 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 you know, but no, seriously. I mean, when you look at when, when you look at um, the certain years in NYPD, when when you look at Boston, certain years in Boston, the the problem is. Is, is, is sustaining the good things where, where a lot of departments have had y- nice. years yeah. of, of heydays. Um, Boston had ceasefire back in the, um, in, in the uh, nine, early 90s. And it was, it was a very effective program. It was measured by academics whom I know and trust very much. But what happened is as people succeeded through the roles of leadership within that organization, it somehow not didn't get important to them. And what, what, what I like about what you just said is, is that it illustrates, at least for me, what works at one particular time is not guaranteed. Okay, so we can check this box off. We always know about how to motivate people. Correct. The example that Chuck Ramsey uses for CompStat is for a lot of years, CompStat was exactly the right thing for New York City uh, to, to use to reduce the crime rate, but they never knew when to stop it. And so then the bad part of that system started getting into play, not just with the citizens in New York, but also inside the department. So when does a leader know that the, the trick that, not trick, that's not fair, but the, the tactic, tactic that I use to get me this success, when is it time to give that up and get something new? When, when you ask the question, when you bring everybody together routinely and say what's working and what's not, and let's keep doing what's working and let's fix what's not or stop doing it. As you said earlier, I'm too busy working to, to, to reflect on it and to do that feedback cycle. You're, you're right. It's needed. We're always too. You know, when, when I was a cop years ago in Connecticut, and when, when I would go into the record room to pull a, pull a record, there was a sign hanging on the wall. And I'll never forget this sign. And it said, how come there's never enough time to do it right the first time, <laughs> but there's always enough time to do it over again. And, yeah. and like, I mean, that says it all, really. It's so, it's so true. And, and why is that? <laughs> why is it that it's not done right the first time? I'm too well, busy. 
I got a headache. <laughs> I don't have enough people. I'm going to do that. I've got too. I got too much to do. Exactly. You know, I'm just going to let this go. I get sloppy. Exactly. So anyway, this is an example of what we do in the in 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 at the Naval Postgraduate well, we School. Know, Bella Vida, we know, we know you're playing us, and that's I, this was a great no, it's, exercise. It's not, it, it's not the the playing. It's around <laughs> how do you get information out of it's, out of knowledgeable people? Because you have a conversation. We had no. Who was controlling this conversation? Where did the order come from? We just kind of know when we're talking with each other when to bring up an example when to stop when to shift it's it just is inherent in us as as one of our attributes i think at senior leadership levels how do we sign me up coach i'm in you got me and and, and look chris you you pointed out hence uh, the reason that like one of the major underpinnings of why pete and i opted to jump into the rf factor is because to your, I, th- I think to your point is that it's sort of a roll of dice around the country. That it's really it's so dependent on maybe the organization at a given moment in time. It's dependent on the individual at a given moment of time. Is there any way we could correct that? Is there any way we could insert ourselves in there to try to uh, develop that 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 homeostasis? Tell me what you mean by homeostasis. I think I understand, but I may be using the word differently. I'm, from I'm you. too embarrassed to ask. <laughs> well, you know, bringing out that that balance that you're describing, right? We, we, oh. We've had a, a conversation here, the three of us. Uh, I, I think, you know, Pete and I were, were looking at this particularly relentless follow up from one lens. And it wasn't until you provided your insight for us to question ourselves and say, well, look, I'm still Look, I'm still, you know, wedded to relentless follow up. But now I have a sort of a different uh, I have another perspective that I need to consider when I'm having conversations with people. Perspective. Yes. Contextually. Uh, Yeah. And so so do I as well. I think it's a concept that's worth exploring. I mean, in, 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 in my own work. So I benefit from it as well. I think, Ray, for, for your question, I think, you know, we have 50 states, we have laboratories of democracy, as one of the Supreme Court justices said, and, and we have local control of law enforcement. We have all these experiments going on there. I, to how, does, how does law enforcement deal with the current turmoil that, that they're in? I, I don't know. Is it IACP's job to follow that? Is it major cities chief? Who is looking at this to see what we can learn from these multiple experience, experiments that are going on across the country? Where, where, where does the buck stop? If it stops anywhere? Th- these questions are, are they're, they're being discussed in, in so many little enclaves all over. Nobody has those answers yet, right? But I think the more that discussion takes place is that those those answers are going to percolate to the top. They're going to have to. I, I, I hope so. I, I, I have trust that they will come up from the bottom. Uh, you know, they won't they won't be edicts from the White House or or from Congress. I agree. Things will work in communities and police are smart enough to say, hey, this worked over here in a community that's roughly like ours. Let's try that this way. I see the. One of the benefits of our program is we get a lot of police officers in there and each of their communities does policing a different way. Right. And we can learn from that. You know, I, I think what you've just touched upon is the benefits of your program, bringing in not only police, but as you said before, it brings people in from different perspectives, Coast Guard. It brings people in that have relevance to the subject 
like perhaps uh, Michelle Mordeza, who was the the committee uh, the the committee uh, chair of chief of staff, exactly for for the appropriations committee that funded law enforcement agencies. So we want her perspective. We want her in that group. Uh, we 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 want some a- a- academics in the group. Uh, we perhaps doctors that uh, could tell us what happens to physiology to the physiology yeah. of people when you put a chokehold on them. I think that your method is probably the one that is going to find the answer or else, like Ray says, with so many people talking and writing and blah, 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 the answer will come someday. But when are we going to wait years before it all comes together? Or can we use a program like yours to speed this up a bit in the right con- in the and, right and Chris, way. And, and then how do you make it scalable? I mean, there's uh, what, 800,000 law enforcement officers uh, in the United States. 18,000 agencies. 18, agencies. I was fortunate enough to go through the NPS experiment um, along with another uh, almost 2,000 people with all its programs, but that's still not scalable enough, right? To, to bring all this, these diverse set of agencies. I don't know what the answer is to do that, but we're certainly going to have to think about. I, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not a fan of answers uh, in, in the sense that I think we're using that in that, okay, that issue's done. Let's move on to something Correct. else. I, I think, I think what we were talking about are in the literature, wicked problems, problems that it's really not clear what the definition of the problem is, but we kind of have a sense of it and, and we'll help, we'll push the can down the road a little bit. We'll help manage the problem and maybe mitigate uh, some of the negative impacts of that. Uh, climate change is one of them. Immigration is another one. Uh, there, there's there's lots of them in policing, public health, and so on. Um, I think what we do is, again, back to our mission, which is to educate people, to help educate people, to be effective as leaders in their part of the Homeland Security enterprise. And what that means as a leader is somebody will run for office, but it also means somebody gets into their network and starts bringing law enforcement, bringing fire and public health and emergency management into their fusion centers, for example. And let's see what they can contribute. That's one of the things. There have been some benefits. That, and I can't say benefits, but there have been. We have learned some things organizationally through the COVID uh, continuing uh, emergency about the role of different agencies and different types of intelligence, public health intelligence, for example, using using medical doctors um, as as a part of the public safety enterprise that we didn't know before this. So we can't. We, we can uh, we can expose people to certain ideas, but it's more we don't teach people things. They learn things. And when and the proof to me is learning is when you can transform an experience into knowledge. And so they go back home and they have more experiences. And as Ray suggested, you look at what happened in a different way before, because you have more concepts, you have more ideas. Maybe you can remember the the. The voice of the firefighter it said, yeah, we we would like to know what are in those buildings in your cities because maybe we can help out. Um, and I think we expose people to the ideas of what learning as an adult means and that it's a lifelong activity and then give some some methods to do that and hope that they're able to do that when they get back home. We're in, man. I, I thought this this is probably the most interactive uh, uh, the podcast that we've had is one of the, certainly the most enjoyable. 
Okay, so why is that? Why, why aren't they all like this? Because we had the leader telling us how they led, and you made us learn and explain what you, we you, were you, doing. But you, you, you also knew a lot about, I mean, you had history with just about everybody you brought in. Yeah. And uh, I... I found them, you, you were able to ask them questions to, to pull out what I thought were insightful uh, interviews. And you asked us the questions this time. You turned the tables on us. Well, I don't mean to turn no, the no, tables. No, no, I, 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 okay, right. I, I say that. Okay, all right. I say that. Okay, good. There's that insight. Yeah. Uh, there's that introspection that I, I told you. What I got from the program is, just this is a reminder of, is forcing yourself, you just can't, it's not about your opinion anymore. It's not about what you're thinking as much as uh, you have to consider your audience. You have to consider uh, how what you're saying, how it's going to be received, and be able to argue that. Uh, what, what I've watched early on, and I got to see this even when I was uh, when I when I graduated, and I would sometimes come back and visit and 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 watch you that first day where your the cohort is in front of you and when the students that held their own and were able to argue their point it was you could see there was like a win that that took place not only for for them yes. but for you to recognize hey look i don't there's no right or wrong answer here it's i need to know why you're saying what you're saying. It's just not a hackneyed expression I'm looking for. I, I like the notion of it's a win. It's it's a win when uh, I think let's take the 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 notion of the uh, uh, relentless follow up. Uh, I think my understanding of that has been improved through this conversation. I don't think either of us or any of the three of us won that discussion. I think we all won that discussion. And how can you have conversations with people about issues that you all care about where having the conversation is a win for everybody, you know, in that, in that sense, but that I don't think is idealistic. We're, we're, a lot of times arguments are who won, who, who lost, but it's, it, how do we expand what we know about the concept through our, under, through our discussions? That's what I liked about that that part of the conversation. Pete, I'll let you ask one final question. Machiavelli in this book, The Prince, asked if it was better to be loved or feared. What would you say if I asked you that question as a leader? I would say, yeah, I, I would say yes. <laughs> I, 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 I would give me a situation and I'll tell you if I have to be loved in that one or feared. So you're going to say it's in the context of the situation. Well, I, 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 I think so. When, when is, when would the prince be safer? Uh, if he was loved or feared, what, what uh, would I, I don't, enhance I, his I, safety? I, 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 I think if you're a leader, I think you have to abandon the notion of being safe. I think then you have to then you go back to being a manager. I'm not trying to be argumentative here. I think in the hypothetical, um, it's not uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, some British guy wrote. Uh, I think that it goes with the territory. I think if you're going to be an effective leader, you have to think about losing your job. And as many of your guests have said, Doing the right thing is is the is the motivator, and if the right thing is to be feared, um, I, I'm I'm not a I don't think I'm a, a person that that frightens people. Uh, 
and so I don't I don't really have that experience. But it's a lot easier, I think, to to find out um, what do we have in common and how do we build something positive about what we have in common. I don't want you to be just like me. Fair enough. Doc, but, oh, well, yeah, uh, yeah. wait a minute. So if you were to ask me a question, Pete, that you hadn't asked other guests, what would that be? Um, I'm going to go back to the, the rules that, that you said that you had in your program. Do you, I'd like to know what they are. I, I, have you, I, I mean, are they consistently shared? Um, at some point during the, the thing? In other words, do you go back uh, at night and say, did I cover all these things before I let this crew, crew out of here? Or um, Yeah, what do, what do you think? Uh, it's, we have a, we, when we first started, we had a one-page uh, policy manual. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> and, then the, and now I think our policy manual is about 70 pages. Okay. All, all, all of them generated by somebody not meeting up to the prime directive. Uh, I'm... I may be exaggerating a little bit yeah, uh, from that. I get it. It's, it's, it, we bring in people who have already been socialized by rules. Uh, and so it, we just ask them to ask prof- act professionally. They are grownups who are in graduate school, for crying out loud. And so they, they're strongly motivated to be in graduate school. And they're a delightful group of people to work with. They're, they're there not because they have to. It's not a training program. They have to compete to get in. And... Um, and and that energy allows us to work with them as adults. And the atmosphere that you provide allows people to agree to disagree in a in a professional way. I I, I hope so. Yes. And and for that to work, we have to bring in a variety of people. It can't all be police or firefighters. Got it. Hey, Gideddy, you get one question. I tried to ask you the question. I wanted to. What's the question? I wanted to know your story, and you wouldn't tell me. I, it's not that I wouldn't tell you. I wanted to know why you wanted to know that. And I didn't get a good answer to that. I mean, how, how was it contributing to this conversation? And I thought it led to whatever we did talk about. Yeah, true, uh, true. So, true. so what, what book are you giving to people these days, Ray? Oh, boy. Um, you should watch your own podcasts. Yeah. Oh, Boyd. Yeah. This is my favorite. You brought them up before the OODA loop. Uh, this this you know the notion of do you want to be something or do you want to do something is the key yeah. here right yes you can learn a lot from lieutenant colonels i, I believe there's a reason why they didn't become colonels um, he, he was able to keep his internal integrity i think yes. and still be an air force officer absolutely but at a cost at, 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 a, cost, at a cost at a cost good yeah. point what, what are you what are you reading now pete um i'm reading I, I don't want Ray to know. Okay. You want me to I'm, just hold on? No, I'm reading Peril. Um, I'm I'm I've just finished Thunderdog. Um, I, I don't I don't know either of those books. Peril, Can Peril you enlighten is, me? Peril is the book by uh, Bob Woodward. Um, the one that just came out about, yes. about that guy that used to be president. Um, yeah. And um, Thunderdog is about the man that uh, who's seeing eye dog led him and a bunch of folks down from, I think the uh, 60th floor or 78th floor of the trade center. Kidding. And, and, and yet, no, and the, the, uh, he was blind and his do- uh, seeing eye dog led, led him down the stairs. And he talks about how that happened. And then I've just finished um, uh, 
you paint horse. You paint houses, don't you? About Jimmy <laughs> Jim, Jim, Jimmy Hoffa. I, I heard that story. That's wonderful. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, How about you? Oh, well, so uh, I was. What I was prepared that, for was the your, question about. Is that your ringing? Yes. Is that your wind My chimes? Ring? Somebody's got wind chimes. I on. don't have wind chimes. Okay. I don't have wind chimes. I think maybe it's time for you to rest. <laughs> uh, what is uh, that? I don't know. I, so yeah. uh, I, I was prepared for the question of what are you reading now, which right. you didn't ask me, but you yes. asked others. So the answer is a lot of stuff. But what I would talk about is not so much what I'm reading, but how I'm reading. It's a technique that I learned from the author Uval uh, Harari, who is a, he's a, an Israeli uh, historian who's written a number of books. The most recent one is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. He's a prodigious reader. And what he does is he'll read the first couple chapters of, of a book. And if he hasn't learned anything by the second or third chapter, then he'll put the book away and move on to something else. Combine that with Kindle, allowing you to download the first chapter of many books for no cost. You can read a, a boatload <laughs> of stuff to get a sense of, okay, do I want to go out and buy this? Pete, book? I told you he's a smart man. Yep, yep, yep. It's, I'm a smart, my knowledge is, I know a lot of things, but they're really thin. If you, if you probe me, <laughs> the, the, the knowledge doesn't go down very deeply. Uh, one of the things that I've learned from Naval Postgraduate School is, is how much intelligence there is in the world if I just shut up and listen to it. Oh, that's a great way to end this, right? Certainly is. That was perfect. Hey, Doc, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, this was, it was entertaining. It was challenging. And it was certainly informative. Edutainment is the word for what we did, I think. That's nice to meet both of you. Thank you for doing this podcast. And I didn't know about the other one. I will spend some time watching that as well. I'm, I'm glad you're, you're getting people and giving them the, the forum to, to think out loud with you. Thank you. Have a good evening, both of you. Be safe, sir. Wow. Was that? No, that, that was great. Wow. That, that was great. I, I love, I love the way he challenged us. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that um, there were a lot of lessons learned uh, for folks. It's a whole new way of looking at the whole subject we're talking about on our RF factor. And well, um, I was uh, I was concerned about telling you because I knew he would do that. Um, I was concerned how you might prepare for it or even react to it. Um, Ray, I bought guns. A, I bought guns from Morris von Campbell. Come on. And, uh, <laughs> that, that's that is true. But you have to experience the Bella Vita and you the, can only imagine experiencing that. Well, it's incredible, right? It it really forces you to think through think through things during your conversation. No, you're right. Nope. And I, it's uncomfortable. I, it you're outside your comfort zone, but that's where you're learning. I learned a lot, and I think the people that watch this are gonna learn a lot. Yeah. Every everybody we have on brings a different dimension. And you know, so I, I think that this was an important one that I'm glad we had. Absolutely. All right, my friend, you be safe, and uh, I'll talk to you soon enough. All right, I'm going to go eat dinner. Okay.